You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Today's about Easter. Today's about the resurrection. Why don't we pray before we see what God has to say to us? Jesus, what an astonishing reality that this morning we do not reflect on a dead religious leader or prophet or philosopher, but we get to speak to the living Lord of the universe. And Jesus, I thank you for every soul in this room. And I pray that this morning you would sustain me and that they would hear your offer of eternal life clearly, Jesus. That's what Easter morning is all about, is a hope of life with you. God, would you make clear to us today exactly what you offered? Spirit open, um, hearts, ears, minds to receive this. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, today's Easter. This is Resurrection Sunday. This day, it's the most momentous for for Christians around the world because today we celebrate what is really at the core of Christianity. You know, if you look at what the earliest Christians proclaimed, the earliest Christian message, what did these marginalized, seemingly crazy people go throughout the Mediterranean proclaiming? It was not, listen, we've discovered this new spiritual experience. It's amazing. You've got to try it. It was not good news. We've finally gotten politics right. We've got the policy agenda to fix the Roman Empire. Just listen to us. They didn't say, guess what? We've discovered rules. You might have rules. We've got better rules for your life. And if you do our rules, you'll live the best way. They didn't say, here are some life hacks to crush anxiety. No, what, did the, what was the message? It wasn't anything that people were supposed to do, first and foremost. It's something God had done in history. The apostle Peter says it like this, one of the earliest sermons. Here it is. God raised Jesus from the dead. To this, we are eyewitnesses. You killed Jesus. You buried Jesus. Now the tomb is empty. We've seen him. Not a spirit or a ghost, but him, flesh and blood. He's alive. That's the earliest Christian message. It's the core Christian message. Here's why. Why did Jesus die so that our sins could be forgiven? Why did God raise Jesus? That we might have eternal life with him. The offer today, the offer if you're exploring Jesus, maybe you came because you're interested, maybe a relative drug you to church, right, quite literally. Wherever you're here, I'm glad you're here. I won't take up too much of your time. But I want you to hear Jesus' offer clearly because this is at the core of what Christianity is. What is the core Christian offer? It's this. Jesus says it, John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What Jesus offers you today is a life that death cannot touch. A life everlasting. So let's be honest for a moment. Do you, do you really want to live forever? 
Do you really want everlasting life? I mean, really? Let's be honest. The answer is complicated, isn't it? You know, years ago, I was talking to someone about Jesus, and I was giving him this message, right? Jesus will give you eternal life. And, and he said to me, you know, frankly, I'm not that interested. And I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, I mean, who wants to live forever? What's so great about that? And I said, oh, that's a good question. Is, is a longer life a better life? That's not an easy question to answer, is it? Because our relationship with longevity is complicated. On the one hand, we don't want to die. A lot of people really don't want to die, especially if you're a wealthy tech CEO. You really don't want to die because it seems like every year they just pump billions and billions more dollars into these super ambitious startups, all devoted to unlocking some genetic fountain of life, right? If we can just find the thing at a biological or genetic level that sort of turns back the hands of time, we can just keep living longer and longer. And, and many futurists and tech people, they're very optimistic about this. I mean, they're really optimistic. I heard a guy talk about something. This is what they're calling it now. It's longevity escape velocity. That's what they, it's like out of a sci-fi movie. Here's what it is, right? If each year technology expands our life by two years, we reach longevity escape velocity, and then we can avoid death altogether. And I heard a leading futurist say, look, we got a 50-50 shot of getting there in the next 15 years. So things are looking up, right? Well, now at one level, these people sound like uh, tech CEOs, right? This sounds outlandish, delusional, but clearly people are very, very serious about extending life and finding the fountain of youth. And it's not just tech CEOs, is it? I mean, I hear so many people talking about living to 130, 140, 150, and there are all sorts of intricate life hacks to accomplish this. Optimize your sleep, personalize your nutrition, intermittent fasting, elaborate fitness trackers, gut health, meditation, LDL levels, and the list goes on and on and on. And so we expect to live longer. We long to live longer. We hope that we can just prolong life indefinitely. Here's the problem. We really want to. On the other hand, we sort of know that prolonging life is a double-edged sword, isn't it? You know, you can have an increased human lifespan. Does that mean you'll have an increased human health span as well? In other words, even if you could live longer, does that mean you'll enjoy more years of healthy life or is that just more years of suffering and chronic disease and injury? Uh, Ezekiel Emanuel is skeptical about these claims. He's a doctor, teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. You might remember an article he wrote 10 years ago. It's now infamous, but it was entitled, Why I Hope to Die at 75. Boy, let me tell you, it's a real pick-me-up. It will brighten your day. Uh, the article generated no shortage of controversy, but I think Emmanuel makes a very good point. As you get older, you will lose things. You will. He knows this as a doctor. You will lose mobility. You will lose creative 
capacity. You will lose mental acuity. And even in the best cases, those things still happen. And in the end, he says, you are no longer remembered as vibrant and engaged, but as feeble, ineffectual, even pathetic. Happy Easter. Um, <laughs> so here's the conundrum, right? Living longer might lead to great joy or it might just lead to more pain and suffering. After all, living longer guarantees you'll experience more suffering. You'll see more friends die. You'll bury more people. You'll see more divorce and relational wreckage. You'll suffer more. You'll see things fall apart. Here's the most sobering fact of all. If you noticed, you know, as people grow older, they don't necessarily get better. Do people always become better versions of themselves? Let's be honest. Do people become more compassionate, more self-sacrificing, more generous, more peaceful, more wise as they age? Or do they just become more paranoid and bitter and resentful and get off my lawn and... I mean, you know old people you don't want to be around, right? How do you know you're not going to be that person? So, so extending life, let's return to the question, right? What's so great about living forever? Let's rephrase it. What's so great about Jesus' offer of eternal life? The Apostle John spoke more about eternal life than any biblical author. The phrase shows up 17 times in his gospel, so he's the guy we have to have a chat with to figure out what eternal life is. What does John think eternal life is? Here's what I want you to think about this morning. When the Bible talks about eternal life, when Jesus offers you eternal life, he is not primarily talking about a quantity of life. He's not just talking about life that keeps going. He's talking about a new quality of life beyond what we could imagine. That's the offer of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. In John's gospel, sometimes Jesus says, I've come to bring eternal life. Sometimes he just says, I've come to bring life. He says it this way. Here's Jesus' purpose. John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly to the full. Abundant life, overflowing life, the life you want, the life you crave but can't seem to get, the life of heaven breaking into your life on earth. That's Easter life. It's always available in Jesus. It's only available in Jesus. So this morning I want to talk briefly about three things that Jesus offers, and I'm convinced you can only get them in Jesus. Three things. First, I promise it's not five. Don't let the numbering fool you. It's three, okay? <laughs> One is the source of lasting satisfaction. Only Jesus can fill you up in a way that leaves you filled. Second, eternal life is the chance to start over. If you want to start over in life, only Jesus gives you that chance. Finally, third, eternal life is the one place in the universe where you are safe and can know it. So let's look at each of these. What is eternal life? What does Jesus offer? Three things from the Gospel of John. The first, according to Jesus, eternal life is a satisfying life. You might remember this story. John 4, Jesus meets a woman by a well. 
And Jesus does something interesting. As this woman is drawing water, he asks her for a drink. And after asking her for a drink, Jesus says, do you want a drink from me? And now she's confused. She's got a bucket. She's looking at Jesus. He has no bucket. And so she says, well, what kind of water are you offering? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water that you're offering will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying to that woman. Here's what he's saying to us. You're always thirsty. You're always thirsty. You are always looking for a drink and you are always looking for a well. A well to satisfy the thirst of your soul. Some of you choose really lousy wells. Some of you choose better wells. Guess what we all have in common? You're still thirsty. You want something that will quench the longing of your soul for joy, for fullness of life. You are looking for it. Every heart has it. Every heart has a desire and a craving. And whether you acknowledge it or not, it's there and you're always looking for the well. Every moment of your life, because my soul is thirsty, I'm looking for that well. Here's what Jesus is saying. Doesn't matter which one you run to. The well will run dry. It's gonna run dry and your soul's gonna get thirsty again. That's the problem, isn't it? You know, I was thinking about California this year. You know, it's been a remarkable winter, hasn't it? I wanted to quantify what's happened in terms of rainfall. I was looking at an article, 78 trillion gallons of water, okay? Two Lake Tahoes have fallen on California up to this point, right? Wow, snowpack, 234% of normal. That's fantastic. And so I'm asking the question you're asking, right? Is the drought over? <laughs> right? Is it? And none of the experts will say it's over. No, because the underground aquifers are all sucked up and it's going to take years. And, it never, and now, now, see, it doesn't surprise me because I'm a native, right? People have been yelling at me since I was five to not water my lawn right? I just know this. We're going to be in a drought forever. Okay. I just take it. We can't ever overcome this. Okay. That is the human heart. You can dump tons of satisfaction on the human heart. Guess what? You're going to want more. In fact, the sad, tragic irony of life is the more you lean into something for satisfaction, the less satisfying it becomes. If you hope a romantic partner will satisfy your deepest longings, what do you immediately begin to notice? All of their failures, all of their flaws, all of their shortcomings. If you go to that well, immediately you see, eh, this isn't gonna satisfy me. For some of us, our kids, right? And if my kids can be well-adjusted and attractive and smart and wonderful and all these things, it means I made it and I'm okay. And man, what do you realize? In a few moments, you're like, well, my kids, they're, they happen to be kids. And oh man, I don't, they're, not, they're not getting to the Ivy Leagues. I just hope they don't go to prison, right? And I just, uh, and, and maybe they're not that smart or attractive or athletic or driven or whatever. Maybe they're just a kid and they're not gonna surpass me in my life. Maybe they won't and yet I hope they will. And so not only do they turn out to be a disappointment to me, but I've crushed them under the weight of my expectations. 
that well is going to run dry. For some of us, it's a more literal well. You just run to a substance and you just run to that thing. Maybe it's a drug or an alcohol or something like that. But whatever it is, you know that thing gets less satisfying over time. In fact, you know the inviolate law of every addiction that the best is at the beginning and then that thing takes more and more and more until it gives less and less and less until it takes everything from you and gives you nothing in return and leaves you with nothing in return. That well is gonna run dry. For some of us, it's material prosperity. If I can just make more money, I'll be happy. That's how college freshmen think now. 82.3% of them, according to a recent survey, said becoming very well off financially is the essential or very important objective of my life. Becoming wealthy has now overtaken raising a family as the top priority for college freshmen. Now, I'm not surprised. Will it work? You know, economists do a world happiness report. Have you heard about this? Because they're economists, they try to quantify everything. So they've got a ranking for this, SWB, subjective well-being. They've been measuring it for years and years. And they, one economist said this, uh, income per capita has more than doubled since 1972 in the U.S., while happiness has remained roughly unchanged or even declined. Or money's not going to make you happy. Might make you less sad. It can fix stuff, right? But it doesn't make you more happy. There is a desire in us for a well, and it's infinite. And in fact, the more you look to this world, the more unsatisfying this world becomes. And that's why C.S. Lewis said this, that if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Listen, that craving in you, that hunger, it's not there by accident. God put that in you, and it's a hunger for him. And until you get resurrected life in Jesus, you're going to be thirsty. You're going to be so thirsty, and you're going to try to go to a well that is not going to fill that void. That's what Jesus is saying in John 4. What does Jesus have? A life that's truly satisfying. That's eternal life. That's the quality of life that Jesus wants to give us. It's a satisfying life. Second, it's a life where we can finally start over. Satisfaction. Next chapter, Jesus says this about eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. What kind of life is it? He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What's eternal life? It is a life free from judgment forever and the chance to start over and over and over and over and never be defined by your failures ever again. Ever wish you'd have a do-over? I want do-overs. I want do-overs with parenting from yesterday, right? It's just, I think we can all look back in the last week and say, I'd like a do-over at something, right? Like, did I really just spend three hours scrolling through TikTok? Like, three hours. Where did that go? Did I really just eat a whole gallon of ice cream? A gallon, really? I watched that whole Netflix series, right? They trap you, right? They just go to the next show. Why did I do that? Some of the do-overs are, are silly. You make a decision, and you're like, eh. But sometimes the regret lingers, doesn't it? 
because some decisions have long-term consequences. And, and to me, the older I get, the more sobering this realization becomes that, that your future begins to contract and your past begins to expand. And your options for the future diminish, but the past looms larger and larger. And this is one reason aging isn't so great, because your regrets get bigger and bigger and bigger. Why didn't I finish that degree? Why did I treat her that way? Why didn't I take advantage of that opportunity? Why didn't I apologize and try to repair that relationship? Why, why did I fly off the handle there? Why didn't I invest in my own family? Every human being experiences regret, which means every human being has to figure out how to cope with regret. So how do you cope? There's a few ways you can numb yourself. You can just not think too deeply about life. I think a lot of people do that and they just wash away things and addictions or distractions or hobbies. But but it doesn't fix regret, does it? Because the thing is there, you're just ignoring it, the pain is unresolved, and guess what? That thing just gets bigger as you get more numb to life. It's a shell of a life, really, that way of living. For, for some of us, you try to overcome regret by doing good, right? Maybe I can just tip the scales of my life, right? I can just do so much good that people go, oh, he's basically a good guy, right? I mean, he did that thing, but whatever. He's good, he's a good guy, right? Here's the problem with that. Future good stuff doesn't undo past bad stuff. Amen. You ever thought about that? Right, your, your life isn't a scale. That's not how absolution works. It's not like you just do enough good that eventually the bad gets undone. It's not how life works, right? Like if I leave here this morning and go peeling out of the parking lot in my Sentra, right, and just, just book it, <laughs> onto MacArthur and go flying 90 miles an hour down MacArthur and there's a CHP officer there and he goes, oh boy, that's a felony, right? Goes, pulls me over and goes, you know, you were, you were, your speed was, you know, felony, dangerous. I can't say that may be true. <laughs> On the other hand, I am a great dad. <laughs> I have been crushing it this week. I mean, if my kids were here, they could tell you. My wife, she's so happy. So you should let me off. What's he going to say? He's going to say, here's your day in court, right? Why? Because none of those good things undo the crime of that other thing over here. That doesn't even make sense. My past behavior won't absolve me from future mistakes. So why would I think that my future behavior will absolve me from past mistakes? Some people numb. Some people just try to outgood their badness. Some people say the key is to go the therapeutic route. You just practice self-compassion and self-forgiveness. And if I let myself off the hook, that's the most important thing. If I learn to finally forgive myself, I'll be free. Now that sounds really nice. And maybe you should forgive yourself. Here's the problem. It doesn't get anywhere near the root of the problem. In general, two reasons. In general, first, we think of forgiveness in relational terms. Let's say I wrong you and you don't forgive me, but I forgive myself. Am I forgiven? Will I experience forgiveness for the wrong I've done to you? That's an odd way of thinking about forgiveness, isn't it? It, it almost assumes a relationship. Here's the deeper problem. 
Ultimately, if I can absolve myself for my behavior, it means that in some sense, I am the judge, jury, and executioner of the universe. If I can grant myself a pardon, it means I determine the terms of justice for the universe, which means there's no higher standard in the universe than who? Me. But if getting rid of guilt is just a matter of saying, well, I shouldn't feel guilty anymore, Basically, just define morality for yourself then. I'm going to define what's good. I'm going to define what's bad. As long as I'm true to myself, who cares? Never have to feel guilt. I just live up to my own standards. And if I don't like them, I'll change the standard because there's no higher standard than me. But you know that doesn't work. You, you know it doesn't work because you know at an intuitive level, that's how psychopaths think. At some level, you know there's a higher standard of good that binds on me and a higher standard of evil that I should avoid here. It transcends me. It doesn't matter what I think in any one moment. Now, if that's true, the moment you acknowledge it, if there's a transcendent standard that is bigger than you, that means you need a transcendent pardon that's bigger than you too to get rid of your regret. See, the moment I acknowledge some decisions are right and some are wrong, I need a bigger solution than me. And what the Bible does so brilliantly is it helps us understand our own feelings of regret in life and says, no, they're real and they're valid because there is real good and there is real evil and you know when you've done it. We don't dispute that in our conscience. The problem is how do I get free? This is what Jesus is offering. He's saying, here's the one way you get free from everything you've ever regretted. There's only one way. It's that Jesus becomes a human being and then he takes on our sin and at the cross, all of that judgment due to us for our failures, all of it is placed on Jesus. And God, the transcendent lawgiver, says it's placed on Jesus and the judgment is passed there. And do you know what the resurrection means? that the judgment has been passed, that justice has been served, that forgiveness has been made, and so it's done. It's done. Jesus rises to life on the other side of judgment. If you believe in him, do you know what he's giving you? His life. It's a life on the other side of judgment too, where God says, I forgive you. He says, your past does not define your future. I define your future. That is the only way you'll ever get free from regret is to have someone with the authority to forgive you actually forgive you for everything you've ever done. That's it. Other than that, you are, you are just dealing with human coping mechanisms that at some level we know just avoid the real problem. Lasting satisfaction. A new start. Finally, when you have a new start, you have that kind of life, guess what you are and you can finally experience? You're safe. You're safe. Eternal life is a source of satisfaction. It's a chance to start over. It's the place you're safe. Don't you want to be safe? I mean, again, unless you have no fear whatsoever and you're just completely reckless, you probably want to be safe at some level. Jesus says, I'll give you a place to be safe. He says it this way in John 10. He says, think of me as a shepherd and you're my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. I, they follow me. I give them eternal life. What's the quality of that life? They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What is eternal life? Jesus is saying, stop worrying about your life. Let me worry about your life and just entrust it to me and I'll take good care of you.
We care a lot about safety in this culture, don't we? A lot. Not just about being safe, but about feeling safe. Uh, in his influential book on trauma, The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk, I hope I'm not butchering that name, he finally gets around to sort of defining mental health at the end of the book, but he says more than anything else, being able to feel safe with other people defines mental health. Now, I think something resonates there that, yeah, if I can't feel safe around people, I'm going to be in distress. That's true. You should want to feel safe around people. But there's a measurement problem here, isn't there? How do you know you're safe? How do you know you're safe enough? Because what experience tells us is that life is filled with treacherous, manipulative, lying people and uncertainty. Life is painful uncertainty all the time. And so if the standard for my mental health is having to feel safe all the time, boy, that's a high standard to meet, isn't it? In fact, pursuing that can make me more anxious than anything else because how do I know I've finally gotten there? And that's a problem in our culture where we have objective reasons to think we're safe, but we're aware of more reasons to not feel safe. So how do you finally get safe, right? How do you get safe? Here's the thing. In a broken, fallen world, you're never going to be free from uncertainty, risk, calamity, ever. It could happen in the blink of an eye, and there's no way you could prepare for it. So, in that sense, are you ever going to feel safe? Good luck. What we need is a safety that transcends circumstances. A safety that says, even if the worst happened, I'd be okay. Because someone else had a hold of my life and was keeping me safe. And that's what Jesus offers here. Sheep are skittish animals, aren't they? They're scared by lots of things. We're scared by lots of things all the time. Jesus is saying, it's okay that you're anxious. I understand. Just let me take control of your life. Why would you trust Jesus? Well, he died for you. I think he's proven that he has your best interests in mind. The reality is this. We long to be safe. We don't always know how to protect ourselves, do we? My, my boy, Omari, we were, he loves his little Fisher-Price car. Uh, and so he's, he's on the sidewalk all the time, his Fisher-Price car. Remember those? And uh, the problem is he wants to be a car and not a Fisher-Price car. So every five feet or so, he's just going in the street, going in the street constantly. And we have the same little dialogue all day about those are real cars, you're a fake car, you die if you go out there. And he's just like... Right, goes right back out there <laughs> all the time. And so what am I doing, right? I'm not in you know, a tough love, going to you know, teach him a tough lesson here. Got to go, go out in the street and learn. No, right? Like all the time just walking, get back on, get back on, get back on. Why? Because we need someone who's bigger and stronger with a perspective we don't have who take care of us. Right? What if you still need that? And what if that was still available where the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth over all evil, who knows the end from the beginning, says, hey, I will take you in my hand and I will never let go. And I will bring you safely through the valley of the shadow and the scariest things that are gonna happen to you. Guess what? I already know you're getting through them because I'm the one walking through them with you. That's eternal life. That's eternal life. Eternal life is not just some disembodied experience floating around. It, it, it's not just endless life. 
It's a quality of life that we long for and can't get anywhere else. And you only get it through knowing Jesus. That's why Jesus said this in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life doesn't start when you die and go to heaven. Eternal life starts the minute you place your, Jesus, your, your trust in Jesus. And he comes and puts his resurrected life in you. And here's the beautiful thing about that life. It just keeps getting better. It's a quality of life that gets richer and richer. And even when we die, we have a world, a recreated world in new bodies to look forward to. And right now, the quality of life we get in Jesus is just the faintest taste of what you will have forever. And it just gets better and better. Every tear wiped away. Every sad thing come untrue. Every wrong made right forever. Proverbs 4 says, the path of the righteous is like the dawn that grows brighter and brighter until noon day. That's eternal life, a life with Jesus that just gets better and gets better into eternity. I think C.S. Lewis wrote the greatest ending ever just about in his children's book, The, the Chronicles of Narnia. And he ends it this way as he talks about what all the children had been through, the lead characters, and he says, now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what Jesus offers you. Ultimately, Jesus offers you his life, the eternal joy he has always experienced. He wants you to experience too. That's what makes Jesus different than any other offer you're gonna get, right? Any political leader, any world leader, they're asking for your life. They're saying, give me your devotion. Give me your loyalty. Every religious leader, every religion in the world is saying, give me your sacrifices. Give me your atonement. You pledge yourself to me. Only Jesus Christ says, before you did anything for me, I gave everything for you. Before you took a step toward me, I took every step to get to you. I laid down my life so you didn't have to die. I rose because you didn't have the power to rise, and now I offer that. Take it. That is Jesus. That is eternal life. Listen, the resurrection that we celebrate today, it's not wishful thinking. It's not a fairy tale. You can do the research. It's a historically verifiable event that changed the Western world, that changed history, and that changes eternity. It happened. The early followers of Jesus didn't force themselves to believe despite the evidence. They were chronic doubters who were overwhelmed by the evidence to the contrary, and that led them to believe. It's not too good to be true. It is true, and it's the life you want, and it's only in Jesus. And so as we close and you want that life, you could pray something like this, and you can bow your heads now and pray with me. And you say, Lord Jesus, I know I long for a better life, but I was made to share life with you. Thank you for dying for my sin on the cross. Thank you for suffering the judgments that I deserved to remove the barrier 
between me and God. Thank you for rising to bring me into your life, Jesus. I want you to shepherd my soul. I want you to take care of me so I trust you as my Savior. I follow you as my Lord. Come into my life and satisfy the longing of my soul. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.